Welcome to the Mentors Podcast. I'm your host, Emre Yilmaz, and today I'm speaking with a multifaceted artist, a good friend, and a mentor, Demir Demirkan. A celebrated rock guitarist, singer, composer, producer, and now author, Demir's career began in the Turkish metal scene with the influential band Pentagram. His journey from a heavy metal player to a solo artist and a producer who has collaborated with a variety of artists reflects a path marked by personal and artistic milestones. His contributions to the music industry have spanned from his heavy metal roots to a variety of collaborative projects, navigating through different genres and experiences, while contending with the dynamics of public persona and self-discovery. In today's conversation, we delve into the heart of Demir's artistic philosophy, his endeavors in various facets of creativity, and his unshakable commitment to personal development. We discuss the significant role of meditation in his life. We touch upon the nuances of the human experience, fatherhood and family, the importance of humor in life's seriousness, and the ever-changing landscape of career and success in the modern world. With his upcoming novel, Demir enters a new chapter, embracing the written word as another form of artistic expression. This conversation sheds light on the many layers that compose an artist's life, the journey of self-discovery, and the joy found in creative exploration. And now I bring you Demir Demirkan. To give our listeners a bit of context, Demir is in Virginia, like a couple hours south of Washington, D.C., something like that. Yeah, I'm three hours away from Washington, D.C. I'm in New York area. It's it's around noon for some yeah, so orientation. We're on, the same, we're on the same time zone. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I'm, letting, yeah. I'm letting the people who are listening know right, when okay. I ask you, how <laughs> was your morning so far? My morning's really early. I'm like maybe five o'clock, six o'clock or so, and um, mostly the same. I get up, I have a cup of coffee or hot chocolate or something, and try to meditate in the given time before my son and my wife um, wake up. After that, the day starts. You know, If it's a weekday, I take my kid to school and then go work out and come back and do what I have to do until I pick him back up again. Mm. And then the family life begins. <laughs> okay, so he's already yeah. dropped off at the school right oh, now yeah. and workout, workout yeah. is in? Yeah, yeah, I did all that, yeah. I'm ready. I know that you're a creature of habit. You, you have your routines, that disciplined routines, right? Yeah, I try to stick to a regimen because that keeps me anchored, you know, otherwise uh-huh. um, I go into the party mode and, you know, which is great, but, you know, that's not really productive. And I like to be productive on a, you know, timely uh, basis because um, I have a lot of projects going on at the same time. So I need to compartmentalize the whole, um, my mental shifts, you know, and I need to, I mean, they're, they're not all musical projects. Uh, one might be about investment and total like business and financial mm. stuff and the other might be some musical project and the other one might involve uh, more I'm, I'm I'm writing a book uh, these days so that has completely a different structure of work so I need to satisfy all fronts throughout the day or throughout the week you know I have to schedule them so that I, I can attend to each of them and every one of them with 
close to 100% attention. Wow, that's that's hard, juggling different things along with the family. Yeah, yeah, it is. Also, the family is a big, big time-consuming thing, but it's a beautiful thing. So, I mean, I think if you, give, if you take the family thing, like the basis of your life, and then everything is kind of like sprinkles of, you know, salt and pepper and fairy dust and gold and shit. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> no, the shit phase is a little gone. He's, he's a little older than that, right? I mean, well, yeah, I, shit yeah. In, not in literal sense, I guess. <laughs> no, yeah. not in literal sense, of course, but uh, not everything you do in a day uh, is productive. And, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of bullshit that you deal with. Um, you know, coming from outside or, or from internal things, basically. I, I, I'm really big on personal development and um, I really work on myself almost every day. Meditation is a big part of it. But um, aside from the meditation, it's a lot of uh, reading and thinking and mm -hmm. solving your own puzzles, basically, uh, about how you see yourself, how you see other people or the world or what have you. And then you fine tune everything so that you can be more productive in a, in a more, uh, let me say better way. You know, I can find a better word to phrase it and also quicker. I think time is very important when you're mm -hmm. juggling a lot of projects. And, you, know, you know, you only have like, if you have maybe like eight hours of work that you put in onto real work. So if you have three projects going, obviously you need to, you know, get stuff done in a shorter amount of time to make better progress. You mm -hmm. see what I mean? Um, and because, I mean, if you don't kind of pace up and keep your pace up, they start stalling. And it's a really bad feeling. And once a project kind of slows down and comes mm -hmm. to a halt and that it really takes a lot of effort and willpower and motivation to, you, you know, speed it back up to speed. And um, sometimes you can't and the project mm -hmm. just dies. And um, that's that is a worse feeling. <laughs> so I try not to get get that happening. I find that really difficult when you're changing hats. Like as a as a guitar player, there's a given that in order for your fingers to work properly, you need to spend minimal of certain amount of time a day on the instrument. Yeah. And then when you want to put on the producer hat or any other project that you're doing, it requires a completely different uh, discipline Mind mindset. But I find it hard, like for the recording process, I feel like I'm more productive in the evening when everyone else is asleep and my phone is asleep. No one is calling me, no worldly things to attend to. Yeah. I get to be productive more on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But everything else, I feel like I'm a lot more to the point in, in the earlier part of the day. Do you compartmentalize your day? Like you go, okay, after workout, Atlas is in school. I did my workout, so now let's practice for one hour because you have constantly, you put out new shows. There's not only to keep your chops up, you need to learn new music, make sure it's tight. So do you have a like daily thing? Um, my musical practice is not set on an hourly schedule. It's more like, see, I don't have deadlines for that. So, but I have deadlines for the other projects like this uh, book that I'm writing right now. I'm, I'm right in the middle of it. I think I have two or two and a half months or so to go to finish it up. And uh, that is definitely on a time schedule. Uh -huh. So that's priority. And the second is, you know, there's a, there, there are a lot of projects that, you know, they're tentative. You need to do the work first and then 
as you progress with the work, the project kind of unfolds itself. So I try to keep that going as well, but they're not on a deadline. Just to keep them going, keep the pace and the groove going helps me with it. But I try to play at least an hour of guitar every day. Either I just jam mm-hmm. or if I have to learn something or if I need to uh, do some kind of a stage arrangement or something, I just sit down and do that. I'm very fast. I'm really quick on recording and you know producing and you know writing music. So that really helps me to you know get done like in a small amount of time, short amount of time. When you're writing and recording, do you choose to work at nighttime too in the studio? No, I, I never work at nighttime. I am usually uh, really tired by the end of the day. I mean, uh, uh-huh. I don't do. I rarely do something after five thirty or six o'clock. I mean, that's like, I don't remember the last time I did that. Like I said, I wake up really early, so my day starts really early. Uh, that's enough for me. I don't have to do more. I mean, uh, eight hours, maybe nine hours or so. Let's see. Let's make the calculation. So if I if I start at six o'clock uh, with reading or meditating or something like that and go on till five o'clock, it's 11 hours. 11 hours is a very good amount of time to get a lot of stuff done every mm-hmm. day. I mean, it's 44 hours, like if you're doing a four-day work, uh, four-day week, it's 44 hours. If you're doing a whole week with six days, 66 hours, that's a lot. That's just too much, you know. And um, I have to have time for my own. I got to rest, I gotta party, I got to have fun, watch TV or do whatever, you know, just hang out, you know. <laughs> that's a big part of life. If you don't have that, you can't have the other ones. You know, you can't be productive or you can't be creative if you don't have a life. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's not always like go, go, go. It's just, I mean, you just gotta just, yeah, just burn out. So while all this is happening, fatherhood happened. How did that affect your, your life? That changed everything drastically, mm. seriously. I mean, um, we, we were having a lot of fun with my wife and we were having for traveling nonstop and all that. And um, we didn't plan to have a child. And um, so when we figured out that um, she was pregnant, we just stopped every kind of traveling and partying and all that because we were both 43 at the time. And it's not like you're in your early 30s or late 20s and you can still, you know, women at that age, when they get pregnant, they still work out and do whatever, you know, they travel and, you know, (laughs) Uh, but it's different. So we had to slow down and yeah, we both did actually. So, and then uh, when our son was born, it's a totally different life. So you're on his schedule, you know, you have a boss. Seriously. I mean, if you're responsible as a father, as a parent, obviously you're just going to take care of your kid, man. That's it. This is, I mean, this is life and it's totally your responsibility until he gets his responsibility on his shoulders. So, yeah, I mean. Maybe that changed me in that direction. Maybe I didn't have a child. I was still recklessly partying and, you know, going on tours and traveling the world and doing what I do. And uh, who knows? Who knows? I mean, th- these are parallel universes. Sure. Yeah. Did it affect your your perspective on music and life? Other than the lifestyle choices that you had to adjust? Yeah, I still like touring, but went on tour before I had a child, before I was a parent, I didn't care much. Um, I was on my own time, you know, wherever I was, I was just there mentally. But right now, if I'm on tour and it's been like two or three weeks, I wonder 
I'm not during the shows or anything like that. Everything happens at night. When you go to bed, you sleep. And then three or four hours later, you wake up and you start thinking because you're in a different time zone. And maybe, you know, my wife has taken my son to karate or something and there it's dark and they're on the road. There are a lot of deer on the road. Are they safe? And then you get up at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. wherever you are and you call them up or you wake up with a nightmare because it's in your subconscious as well. You know, you you worry and uh, you start having anxiety issues. And this is a this is a reality with uh, uh, touring musicians. Uh, I read about this. There's a really good book about a. Actually, she's a dietitian, but she was working with like rock stars and from U2 to whatever, and she was going on tour with them. And she's saying that anxiety is a big issue on your mental and uh, physical state. Because you're far away from home, you know, you have your family there and you're out there trying to have, have a good time yourself, trying to go with your business, obviously, that's work. And also perform your best and keep up yourself to the highest possible mental and a physical state. But it's traveling, 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 and obviously partying, 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 you're entertaining. You're entertaining people on stage, you're entertaining people off stage. There's a backstage area where... You know, you the people that you know in that city show up, and you know you you can't just say, "Oh, I'm sorry, I'm so tired, I've got to go to the hotel." You, you just have to be there. And I'm not saying it's a drag or anything like that, but you know, it's one more thing that you need to do. So you do those things, and uh, you're there at the moment, and then you go to the hotel room. You're like dead tired, and you sleep, and four hours later, your body's rested, uh, and you wake up, and your mind starts to work. Mm-hmm. over time, like serious. And uh, I thought this was my thing. But when I read that person's book, I'll find the book's name and the person's name after uh, we do this. Sure, We'll list it on the podcast notes. Yeah, I'll send it to you. And I mean, she made it so clear that this is a thing that touring musicians go through. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you need to have all the help that you can have. Yeah. Nutrition, meditation, okay, water, macro or micronutrition, you know, your proteins or whatever. So if you want to learn more about this, whoever is listening to this podcast or you, this is a thing. you got to be on it. You have to learn how to do this. So I want to get to the meditation part. So what I found with meditation and physical practice, the reason that I do them so religiously is really not because I'm invested in a more uh, healthy future, this and that. I see the results the day off. The gratification is instant. If I don't do that morning practice, if I don't do that sit, if I don't do that cold shower, basically my morning routine, me without them versus me with them is two different people. I get to get things done. My brain works. I go to dark places much easier if I don't do that practice in the morning. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's a thing. That's just one of the realities of human nature. People who don't have routines like that, they see it as an investment, like doing diet, refraining from eating. It's really not that. The entire reason that it fuels me to do, and I'm sure it does to you too, for you to keep that regimen pretty pretty strict, is is the the fruits that you get from it, the day off. It really affects your uh, decisions all through the day, and decisions are the most important things because you know, your decisions actually make you or break you, basically, because you're, you're deciding nonstop uh-huh. on a daily basis, like all the time, from the time that you wake up till you go to sleep. 
So those decisions need to complement whatever you're going for or the next decision that you're going to make. But if there is no coherence between those decisions, your day is going to seriously fuck up and it'll mess you up. It'll really get you off track. Once you're off track, it's pretty hard to get back on track. So I was listening to this guy's book today. His name is Gary John Bishop. And the book's name is Stop Doing That Shit. And he's saying that the difference between the really, really successful people and more ordinary people is that once they go off track, they get back on a lot quicker than the others. That is the basic thing because everybody goes off track. It's nobody's perfect. Okay. Forget mm-hmm. the perfectness idea. You know, it's not there. So they do it a lot quicker and they forgive themselves or forgive the others or just don't look back and get back on track and just boom, that's it. They're right back on track to wherever they're going. But the others, you know, they dabble on who did this? Why did this happen? Oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to get back on? I need motivation. And wait, 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 what? okay, I'll just give a day's break. And so the more time that it takes to get back on track after you fall off uh, is going to determine how successful you're going to be on whatever you're doing or how successful you're going to be as a person, basically. So that's uh, that's the thing that needs to be practiced. Mm. And these are all mental things. You have to keep learning and keep practicing on a continuous basis. You know how there are charts, like, you know, the the companies have charts and all that. Uh They go up and they go on a plateau and they go up again, go on a plateau, go up Uh again on a plateau. So it's like this. These kind of practices are like that. So you you practice and you feel great and you plateau and you don't feel so good about it again. So you learn more things and you practice those and you go up again. You know what I mean? What I'm saying is telling you uh, is a little abstract right now, but this is how it feels to me because, you know, I've been working with this since high school. You know, I've, I've been meditating since I was in high school, which like makes me like 17 or 16 or something. Uh, life changes. Your life gets more complicated as you grow up. There are more components to life, be it work or family or your position in the society and all that kind of stuff and money. And you need to know how to be smart with your money and manage it so that you can do better things. So all those things add up and then you have people working for you and then management issues come up and you know how to interact with people, but you don't know how to manage them. Then you learn that, then that's a big one. That takes years, you know? So now you started off with this podcast with me as I'm a musician, but we haven't talked a single thing about music. These are the things that a person should be doing be him or her a musician or a lawyer or whatever, artist, or athletes, or, you know, what have you. If you have an idea that what you do or who you are will matter, you're going to have to learn all this shit, basically. <laughs> Self-development, you know, management, investing, money, and project management, self-discipline, time management, decision-making, nutrition, sleep, working out, physical activities, what works for you, and all that kind of stuff, you know. Uh It's not like, oh, okay, I play great, so hey, make me a star. (laughs) You know, good job, okay. I wish it was so, but it's not like that, you know. Absolutely. And, And the core of this podcast is to go there because all kinds of 
editorial information about your history in music and your musical practices and your musical approach, which we will talk about. But I believe if you're looking at the big picture, what makes or breaks you is is all these other things that fall on the other end of the day, how you manage your, your body, how you manage your thoughts. So speaking of that, what is your meditation practice like? Is there a specific practice you follow? Yeah, changes according to what I need at that period of time. I used to do a lot of passive meditation, which is basically going to a, a meditative state, which technically I can say it's a theta brainwave because we're in beta right now when we're talking in you know, our daily activities and all that. And then if you kind of stop and you kind of like start daydreaming, it goes on to alpha brainwaves. And then right before you go to sleep, there's the theta. Theta is a brainwave frequency where you're really open to, it's a very suggestive state of mind because it, it, you're very open to hypnosis and all that kind of stuff. And then that is where you can make changes in your subconscious. So that is active meditation. I've researched a lot about this and I think the most technical, you know, leaving all the voodoo and woo stuff aside, um, the most scientific and technical and to the point and quickest explanations are by Joe Dispenza, because yeah. himself, he's a doctor, so he's really exploring this human thing, the, the, the way that humans, human minds, mind works in a very scientific way. And he's been doing that for a long while. And um, his meditations helped me a lot. But on the other hand, it's not only meditation. You have to know what you're doing while you're meditating. I mean, it's not like, hey, be positive. Okay, you know, okay, childhood traumas. My mom did that. My father did that. My brother did that. Or, or the bullies beat me or whatever. Or I was, you know, uh, not in a good state when I was growing up. Let's just say that. Mm -hmm. um, but what do you, I mean, how do you change that? Okay, you learn meditating. You learn how to put yourself into theta brainwave frequency and all that. But what you need to know about the psychology of things too okay so to be able to do that you need to learn the psychological aspects of the human experience meditation is a technique and you need to know what to apply while you master that technique so then that's one more thing on your plate that you need to learn mm -hmm. uh, so you have to read a lot of psychology while trying to develop your personality or your mind or um, or others actually you know because you affect everybody else first of all your your son or your daughter you know because you're a product of your family's lineage of uh, you know mental traumas and all the other stuff so if there's something bad and you don't like and it's counter um uh intuitive or uh, it just kind of stalls you or, or not affecting your creativity positively, then you have to stop that instead of passing it on to your child. So some things need to stop here and now with me. Mm -hmm. So, but what is that? Why am I feeling this way when I'm in this and, and you know, I'm coming up to this successful moment and um, I'm, I'm kind of leaving it and it's been happening because it's a pattern. This could be a thing. So you, how do you solve that? Obviously, there's a, a pattern there, which is a negative pattern. And uh, you have to learn, find out what it is, 
in you because everybody's different. And then apply those techniques uh, in meditation techniques and um, put this on to work so that you can actually fix your subconscious. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's, that's active meditation. And that's what I do. So what exactly are the techniques you employ to get to that meditative state? Is it mindfulness? Is it mantra? What's your go-to? Well, here's the thing. You have to know how to stop your chatter, mind chatter, uh -huh. and slow down your brain waves and go down to alpha or theta, if you can, and keep it there while you do the work. I mean, your conscious mind is still active during the meditation because you need to impose your subconscious mind with what you need to impose it with. So you're really aware. You're not like sleeping or anything like that. Your mind is there. You're conscious. Mm -hmm. It's just that the chatter is gone and your, your brain waves are slowed down to the theta or alpha, lower alpha, so that you're open to the suggestion, basically. So you know, how, how people hypnotize the others. Mm -hmm. So they kind of make them doze off. And then, you know, the old, you know, cartoon mm -hmm. clock thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so once your filters, um, your judgment filters, let me just say your, your mental template shuts up, your subconscious is open to suggestion. It takes everything as truth after that point on. So whatever you need to change or impose. That's when you do it. That's active meditation. Mm -hmm. You can do transcendental meditation. You can repeat your mantra or you can follow your breath or whatever you do that'll get you onto the um, slow brainwave frequency. But what is that you do? What do you employ to get there? What I do, like I said, I've been doing this since 16 or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't have to do much. Seriously, it's just like a pushing a button. Yeah. It takes me a very short time to get into slow down brain frequency because um, I can just stop the chatter and a few breaths maybe and concentrate on some of the uh, energy points on my body, relax, relax my body, and then do some technical things like I learned from before, whatever works at that moment, basically. There's so many techniques. Let me just put it that way. There are Buddhist techniques, Taoist techniques, Qigong, Meigong, and transcendental meditation, you know, all kinds of Indian stuff. Uh, but, you know, a quiet place helps. I sometimes plug my ears, you know, so that I don't need the refrigerator or, you know, the, the, the air blowing out of the, you know, the vents or however long you can sit and do the work. You just keep doing it. Just do it whenever. It's a tool that you use. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's a function of the brain. So you have to learn how to do that. I think they need to start teaching this at schools. Huh. It's a shame that they still they don't, you know. It's the first thing that they need to teach because if you're saying that the brain is the control center of the body or or the, the human being, then teach me how to use that, right? Yeah. Nobody does that. They fill it with shit, basically, that we don't, we'll never need. All kinds of lies and, you know, justifications of how we are right now. They teach you the history, which they wrote. <laughs> yeah, they interpret it in quotes so uh, that you're a good citizen and you're a working person and you generate income so you pay taxes and you're a gear in the machine. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. It's, it's, just, it's just fucking stale. 
it's just so old from like early 1900s and we're so far ahead now. Formal education and the institutions, the governments and all that, they got to fucking get a grip because citizens, you know, people of the earth, you know, the living, breathing people who make the world turn actually are way ahead than governments and the institutional, official institutional programs. I mean, you're teaching religion. Okay, you can keep teaching that, but teach this person, this young person, how to get a control of his or her mind. What's wrong with that? Is it so wrong that it might affect the institution? Maybe, because then you're producing free human beings, <laughs> free of themselves or any conditioning. Once you learn how to meditate and apply it, all those principles that I was talking about, what you do is you basically erase and delete your conditionings. So whatever that doesn't make sense to you, you can just skip it. You can just cancel, you know, just that's it. Mm -hmm. It can be gone. So your religion or your political view or your nationality or your history of your people or whatever. See, all that stuff right now, it's holding us back. I mean, can't you just feel that it's holding you back? It's holding us back as a human society. We got to change some of the things because the revolution is not going to be social. It'll be individual. I mean, everybody does that. And then we get together and form a different kind of society where, you know, the negative parts exist less. Yeah. At least. You were talking about earlier, um, clearly I'm a heavy metal player. I'm not here to be a role model to anybody, but that's not true. You are a role model to role model to your son. Yeah, that's that's something exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I try to I try to keep it at bay. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> um, I am a very affectionate and a loving person. People have opinions about metal players and how they look and how they behave on stage, and or they they think we're all crazy. But I think we're the sanest people on on earth that you can actually come across with, because. Um, all that stuff that you see happening in the shows or in the music and, you know, you go like, and the music is like, and all of a sudden it just cuts down and it's like, you start singing nicely and all that. And anybody who's not in the genre will go like, what the fuck is going on? Well, you know what's going on? It's a catharsis. You're expressing your emotions in a very, very free way. So... What is not healthy about that? You know what I mean? Totally. I, like I said, there's actually a research. Most of the heavy metal listeners, you know, the audience that go to festivals and all, you know, punked up and, you know, piercings and what have you, they're actually people that have kids, regular jobs. They had an education, may have happily married. And there's the cheating factor. A heavy metal audience is the least cheating in the relationships. Yeah. So, uh, and the most ones are the jazz listeners. See? Really? <laughs> I'm not pointing any fingers yet, but this is the research. The research is saying this, okay? Wow. Most unfaithful ones? Yes. Oh, wow. Uh, the jazz listeners. They, they did this according to music genres, you know? This is so interesting. I don't know how true or correct it is, but it's just a fun thing to think about. Yeah. Society thinks about. 
rock musicians as sex, drugs, and rock and roll is is how it's portrayed. But but you're absolutely right. Yeah. I wanted to dig deeper a little bit and watch some older interviews of you. Oh my God. One of them, you were saying that until you met Tarkan Gözübüyük, you did not think that guitar was something that needed being practiced Practicing. to. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. So what was the very first motivation that made you pick up that guitar? I thought it was just cool. Yeah. I liked being cool and I was physically different than my my environment. I was raised in Izmir and um, I was blonde and um, I I thought I didn't really fit in much and I had a hard time in my mind I had a hard time socializing so this music thing my brother was practicing with his band in our garage and I saw him on stage he did like a few shows when he was in Izmir and he was in college at the time and uh, I was in the maybe uh junior high or something. So uh, I thought it was so fucking cool and I wanted to be that guy, you know. And um, I had no idea about playing guitar and all that. So I picked up his guitar and I started playing, figured out that I had some kind of a talent that I can, you know, press on those frets and make sound and make it rhythmic. I started playing Smoke on the Water right away, <laughs> like every other guitar player. Mm. And then I started learning chords, and, but I didn't, go to the guitar playing direction, I went into songwriting. I loved songs. I wanted to play all the songs that I liked listening to. So I found the chords to those songs and all that, and I learned them. I started singing them. God knows how bad I was, but, and then I figured out how to construct them on my own. I, you know, there wasn't a lot of publications and obviously there was no internet at the time. I was not able to find a lot of uh, information on how to write a song, you know, the lyrics, the development of it, or, you know, the form, you know, the chord structures and what have you. So I, you know, I analyzed them, like really worked on them and uh, discovered a lot of stuff like that and started writing songs. I had a notebook of songs that I wrote uh, when I went to college, you know, I wrote songs till I went to college. And then from college on, after I met uh, Tarkan, the bass player of the uh, heavy metal band that we played with, I was more into songwriting. And then he introduced me to Yngwie Malmsteen and Steve I and all the other guys who was shredders at the time, you know. Um, and I was mesmerized with their playing. I said, how can I get this done? This is impossible. He says, well, you need to practice. I remember it by, like it's today. Um, I said, what? Practice. And I'm like, what do you mean, man? It's just what practice. What am I going to do? It's just, you know, just put on some kind of a metronome and do etudes and, you know, stuff like that. You know, your scales and all that. Oh my God. I said, okay. And then I did that and just that. I left everything else and just, and after a year, maybe it was a, I think it was about a year or maybe half a year or so, I joined the band. They, their guitar player was taking off and they proposed that I join the band. I said, look, man, I'm not that good. You know, I don't, this music is not my music. I was into Pink Floyd, you know, Dave Gilmore and, you know, uh, Paul Simon and Eric Clapton, J.J. Kale. When I say songwriting, I'm, I'm talking about those songs, those songwriters. And the first heavy metal songs I ever learned in my life was Pentagram songs mm -hmm. from their previous albums. I still, I mean, I don't really just, you know, listen to a band and kind of practice it take down the notations and whatever, the riffs and all that. I don't do that, man. I mean, I listen to a lot of 
obviously heavy metal. I like it a lot, but I don't learn the songs. You know what I mean? Obviously, I, if there's a situation that we need to cover one of them, I'm, I'm just going to learn it. But I mean, it's not really my thing. Uh-huh. Well, in that same documentary, I also found out that the very first concert you played with them was at Fame City. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, for, for those who are not children of 80s and 90s and did not grow up in Istanbul, Fame City was an entertainment venue, like an arcade game center, mostly for kids. It was the shit in my childhood. So we have a nine-year gap in age. So that nine year makes a huge difference, right? I was a kid. All I cared was playing arcade games and eating McDonald's there, and you were joining a rock band. That was kind of pioneering in its genre. Of course, in the light of Mollar, Barış Mancho, and Cem Karaca, and yeah. uh, Erkin Koray, but after all those, Pentagram was something new, right? Like brand new, yeah, actually. Yeah, I think it was the first metal, thrash metal band to put out a, a official album through a record label. That kind of puts the metal scene uh, in the radar of the whole uh, music industry. Uh-huh. It didn't really pick up right after because it was still a niche. You know, it was kind of like a subculture. And then in time, metal uh-huh. became popularized all through the world. You know, there were bigger bands, obviously, in the 80s and all that. There's a lot of metal going on. And, you know, Turkey was not so far away from the world. And, you know, it picked up. There were a lot of metal bands at the time, like Metallium and, you know, all the other, Dr. Skull and all the other guys. And some of them remained and they're still around. Do you remember that Fame City concert so yes, clearly? Yes, I do. I actually didn't know what Fame City was because I was not from Istanbul. I was from Izmir. That's right. Yeah. And um, I mean, the whole thing was a blur. But when people was cheering for me and they liked me, they liked my playing, I guess, you know, and uh, I had one pick. That's it. And I didn't have any other picks and they, they were in my in my wallet and the wallet was in my pocket at the show. Right. <laughs> that was my first real metal show. Yeah. I don't know what to do. I, I had shorts. Like, you know, I actually go, I could go swimming right after, you know, that kind of shorts, like swimming uh-huh. shorts. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they asked for my pick and I gave my pick and they asked for more picks, you know, the audience. And there's this video of the clip is just, I reach down in my pocket, I pick up my wallet, I open it and take out the pics from, from my wallet and give it to the audience. That's so funny. <laughs> and we still watch it and laugh at it, but it was so funny. It's just, it was an amazing thing. And, um, but I didn't get the idea really. I mean, I was like, why are these people so happy with me here playing guitars? And later on, I caught up to the fact that, you know, if you're making people happy, they appreciate that, you know, obviously. So, you know, that's one of the big motivations that I've always had. After that point, you played with the band and then you decided to go study music in America? Yeah, I recorded uh, with Pantagram on their second album. And before it got released, I was on the plane to Los Angeles to study at Hamai. And the record got released while I was at school. Like a few months later, I attended. (laughs) And um, I stayed in Los Angeles for four years. And then went back home, this time to Istanbul. I rejoined the band. We made another album and like my producer career started. And I was very successful at it. And, uh, and then I became a celebrity for years. That is the hardest thing I ever 
went through. I, I don't understand the celebrity thing because um, I understand being a musician, a famous musician, but I don't get the celebrity thing. <laughs> you can be a celebrity by doing nothing because it's a total different aspect of being famous, you know? You can create an AI character and that character can be a celebrity. You know, it's a totally different thing than being a famous musician. I think a famous musician gives a lot to his or her audience. And that's why people appreciate that person and the things that he or she does or who he or she is. But when the celebrity component moves in, it's your lifestyle. It's how you shave your hair, your tattoos, and what you wear, what you say, how you say it, your attitude. They all become a commodity. Mm -hmm. And that commodity is for sale, you know, um, by brands and brand associations, media, and all that kind of stuff. I guess it makes people happy to see the celebrity, the person they appreciate, you know, do something out there on the TV or something or social media. I just never could get it. I still don't get the idea of the whole thing. It was very hard for me. I wanted to step back all the time and, you know, stay out of it. But uh, at some point it was not possible because my spouse at that time also was very, very famous. We were right on smack middle of it. And, you know, it was just something that I had to go through. How was that gear shift from that niche metal band to kind of producing to the more popular, did you get any pushback from Pentagram listeners when you were like picking up with your producer career? Of course I did. First of all, I was with a pop star, which kind of was a no-no in the metal scene because metal scene at that time was really more of a orthodox um, scene. So there is still a little piece of the percentage of the audience, you know, keeping up with that, let's keep things pure mentality. You know, if you're metal, you're metal. Nothing just goes in there, whatever. Everything else is the enemy. Um, so it was, at that time, it was mostly like that. And I took on some blows, yeah. Um, and then the real thing came when I made my first solo record because I was singing on it. Nobody knew I was singing. And all of a sudden, there's this guy singing and, you know, he's singing some love songs and all that. And I sang them all my life, but it wasn't recorded. So nobody really heard them other than my friends and my family. When I made the record and put it out, oh my God, uh, it's just, they unleashed hell on me. Media and, uh, you know, the whole metal audience, they thought I was a sellout because they thought what I did was commercial. And then they thought I did all that because of commercial reasons. Uh, that makes you a sellout, right? In their eyes. But the truth is so far away from it. It's just that. I can't believe I'm talking about this after 23 years. It's just, um, I really want to, to put those songs out mm -hmm. and I wanted to sing them in front of the people who appreciated them. It had nothing to do with making money or being more famous. I was already fucking famous, man. I mean, I could just walk on the street and be on the newspaper next day. I don't need more fame and I didn't more mm -hmm. need more fucking money. I was get shitloads of money from the productions I did at that time because there were CD sales. Remember that time? CD sales, cassette sales? The, the record companies were rich and producers were, were getting paid. 
you know, not like now you wait and wait and wait and hopefully Spotify is going to give you uh, $50 something. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, <laughs> uh, so the way I came over that retaliation from the media and the metal audience was just to keep quiet and keep doing what I did, basically, you know. Mm -hmm. And then... I had my own audience and it kept on going. I made more albums and then I established myself as a solo artist then. I didn't like producing a lot though, you know, I still don't like it much, you know, it's just, I don't want to be in a studio just working my ass off day and night, sleepless and, and the record labels on one side and the artists on the other side and artist management is on the other side and everybody's saying something different about the thing that you're doing and you're kind of caught in between, you're trying to make this record to sell and also sound good and be artistically viable. So you're all like in the middle of this whole thing and you're the producer, you better get it done because that's your job. They hire you for that. But they keep forgetting that they hire you for your musical direction and everybody has opinions on how the song should be. So, uh, you know, it's, it's just it's one of these things that you have to go through when you're producing. This really happens when you're kind of hired by the record company to make the record of the artist, you know, because they're giving you, you know, at that time, in all times, they give you shitloads of money and they give it to artists. You go like, so are there any songs? Where are the songs? They go, there's no songs. You're like, the fuck, am I going to write the songs too? Well, sure. While you're at it, why don't you write the songs too? Oh, okay. And then you collaborate with the artists or maybe write them on your own. Or maybe go out and look for songs from songwriters and publishing companies and bring in and then start producing or, you know, arranging them in a way that, you know, you see fit for that artist and the time and the, the industry, the state of industry at that time or what the radio trends. plays, the trends and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and you need to do it quick because, you know, pop trends, they, they're like buses, man. One leave and the other one comes and it's different, you know. So you got to get that done quickly and get it out there so it's still viable in, in a commercial sense. Uh, it's a job, you know, it's not like a very artistic expression of yourself. It's a job, you know, you have to be diligent on your formulas, your time management, your, you know, people's management, your artistic take on how the sound should be. And then you have the artist sing in the room and you coach him or her to put out his or her best. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, it's the reason that you're getting well paid is because it's a really, really tough job that not a lot of people can do successfully. Uh -huh. So when the industry discovered that what I was doing succeeded every time, I was on the spot. And then I started picking and choosing the best artists that I can work with so that obviously you're not going to work with everybody because you're going to die, you know, basically out of sleeplessness or whatever. And also, you want to be efficient on your economy as well. You put in the work and the effort and the fights and arguing and all that kind of stuff and sleepless nights. And in the end, you want to have the best outcome. If it's a more famous singer, then you appreciate it more. You do a bigger job. You get paid more afterwards with the royalties and all that. So, I mean, like I said, this is a career just like any other career. If you like doing it, be my guest. You know, just I, I'm not saying it's easy. It's one of the toughest jobs in the world. But if you do it right, you're going to have a good life.
but I don't like it. I'm not, I don't want to do it. Let me just say that again. That's not my thing. I just happened to be there. <laughs> what an accident. So at this point, you're only wearing the producer hat for your productions, right? Yeah, I, but I try to keep that to a minimum. Like I said, I don't like production. I don't like the album sound produced. So I try to keep it as raw as possible on my, on my material. Yeah. I see. I guess that's another production idea, but yeah, hey, you know. Yeah, I totally get it. To get back to the pushback. So you stood your grounds firm as you are, as with your integrity. And it's so beautiful to see now yeah. that none of that exists anymore. You, you are who you are and, and no one cares about other bullshit. A lot of things changed since then. I mean, I, we had a reunion with the metal band. Obviously, I'm still with the band when I'm in Turkey and I'm at the shows and everything. So that cleared that idea of me getting kicked out of the band because of my girlfriend's being a pop star. But now I'm not with that person. So that changed a lot. And also mm. my third album, which I put out in 2004, had a very, very heavier sound than the previous album. So that helped a lot. After that, I made a lot of softer albums, acoustic albums and stuff like that. But yeah, you know, uh, I, what was that thing? The six steps or five steps of uh, acceptance. Do you remember that? Is it Ruiz for... Uh, I don't know. I, mean, I would vaguely remember. For rules? Yes, something you just, everybody says, no, no, no. And then there's a break point that everybody accepts at the end. So, this, you know, that's how you accept something new. There's a process to it in the human mind. So, but when that, when we're talking about millions of people, masses of people, uh, obviously, you know, that, that retaliation, that lashback is, is a lot stronger and you need to really stand against it on your own as a single person, because what they, the audience or the, or the media is attacking is your brand name. It's not you. It's, let's say it's mm -hmm. Demir Demirkan. Okay, my name is Demir Demirkan, but it's a brand. I am Demir. You know, I have a, you know, I have friends. I have a family. I have a father, a mother, brothers and sisters. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I eat, you know, I go to the bathroom, I work out and I get sick. You know, I'm just like everybody else. And, but when you associate yourself with your brand, which is out there, which is your name, and all that stuff is laying down on you, that negative comments and all kinds of stuff and misinformation about you on the media like you're like what i didn't do that i didn't mm. say that but people don't realize whenever they're doing that whenever they're saying all those things or writing those things they don't realize that there's a real person behind that thing that they see on the internet or the newspaper or the tv it's a real person with a real life you know I think right now, these days, it's a little better, but that time it was, it was really harsh. There were many times that I, I quit. I, you know, I just went on the streets for like months out of the city, didn't call anybody, just isolated myself. Many times I quit music and then I got back to it. You know, this is a thing. It's just, I, I think a lot of people do it too, but I didn't tell that to anybody. Only my, the, the people that are closest to me knew, you know? Mm -hmm. So during the peak of it all, during your highly branded era, you were with Sarta Perenen at the time and you guys got the first place on Eurovision Song Contest. What year was that? Three, 2003. 20 years ago. 
So yeah, how 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 did that affect things after you became all of a sudden you were a producer that the song won? Yeah, I was the writer. We had a lot of a lashback because the song was in English in the beginning. If it didn't win, we were fucked up. I'm so glad that it, it won. And after that, a lot of people started writing English songs to represent Turkey in the Eurovision. I don't know. They they succeeded again. Um, what changed? I don't know. I think it was one of those things that kind of established the whole celebrity thing. I hated writing for a competition. I always said this openly, and it was big news on the newspapers after we won. Because I said it openly, it's just like, I seriously hated writing this. <laughs> you, know, you don't say these things, you really... Because you won for the whole country and you're the only winner ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, so people were waiting for like all perked up stuff like this and that. And I'm like, okay, you know, it's just, I, I didn't really take it that seriously, but it was great because we won. And I, was, I used to watch Erosion when I was growing up, you know, and I was sad every time we lost. So finally we won and. I was in the team. I wrote the song. And um, I didn't produce it, by the way. I wrote the song. Um, it was Cal. Uh, first producer was Ozan Cholakola, and then a French duo called Galeon. Uh, they did the remix, and uh, it was the remix that went to the competition. The whole impact of it on my career, I don't know, man. If I was out, to be a songwriter, a pop songwriter, you know, make a career at it. It could have helped, but that wasn't really my thing. I just wanted to write my songs and get up on the stage, play my guitar and sing those songs. I mean, all these things didn't really complement to what I had in my heart. I was just doing them because they were my job. You know, once the job is given to me, obviously I'm going to take the responsibility and, you know, deliver, you know, the best way I can possibly can. So yeah, that was that. I didn't go to the competition, by the way, the contest. I wasn't there in Riga. I was at home watching it on TV. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Yeah. So but what is what is next? You mentioned the book. Can you talk about the book a little bit? Yeah, it's a big project. I think there are going to be three more books after that. This is a novel, and um, I don't want to say too much about it. They're sequels, in a way. And each book is about one cardinal concept of the human experience. I'm writing in Turkish. If it goes well, there might be a chance that it could be translated into different languages. I think it uh, could be done maybe in three months or so. And then my idea is to also write the music that will complement the book. There might be songs with lyrics or instrumental songs in that album and that's my next thing but i have to finish the novel first it's a beautiful process i don't know if you know i i study english literature in college i was going to ask that actually before you came to la to study music yeah i was in ankara in bishat and um i loved literature i really liked it a lot and i'm really good with words and when you learn also to write you know because that's what you but you learn, <laughs> obviously, if you study literature. I used to read a lot of anthologies, American um, or English, and some Turkish. But I always had this thought in my mind that I will write a book, 
at one point because everybody was saying that you got to write a book, you got to write a book. I'm like, man, I don't like novels. I don't. I rarely read novels. You know, I usually read nonfiction. But when I started writing, I started writing short stories and novels. I mean, I didn't come up with writing something about management or you know whatever, like business development or something, you know, or personal development. Yes. Because I, you know, I think it's writing songs or making an album, but you're free on the form. Your novel has a form, but when you think about how many words that you put into that novel, obviously it's not as short as a song, right? Then this whole space that you can just fill up with all the colors and all the thoughts and ideas and feelings and all the wordplay and all the phonetic melody of the words and all that. Oh my God, it's a beautiful thing. I'm having a great time writing it. <laughs> Seriously. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So you can't say much about, you don't want to reveal much about what it's about. No, no, I can't yet. No, that's sorry, man. <laughs> yeah. Once it's done, in three months, you said, but you're, you'll have an editing process. Will you work with an editor? We're editing as we go along. I'm working with somebody because it's my first official book. Before I started writing, I started talking to people. Just like a musician would talk to producers. You know, if you're coming out, obviously you don't know how to make a record, so you have to talk to the producers. So the producers actually kind of, you know, how kids start learning and riding bicycles and then the father or somebody just holds from the seat and the kid mm-hmm. kid learns and then finally goes off. I'm at that stage right now. I needed somebody there to guide me through the, you know, my process basically because... I can lock myself up really fast and so easily because of overthinking. That's one of my negative behaviors when I'm creating. And if I went into this, you know, writing a novel on my own, I don't think I would, I would go on. I think I would just stop. Somebody needs to say, this is good, this is bad. At least guide you through what you're trying to put out there um, because Literature is a different field that I haven't been on professionally. Sure. I mean, if it's music, composing film music, or you know, I, I, mean, I can write books about them so easily, but I'm writing a novel. Mm-hmm. And this is a whole different field. It's still art. I mean, we're in the same domain, but the, you know, the field is different. Not that I'm too far away from the field. Obviously, I studied it. I love it. I read a lot. You know, it's just there's going to be a book with my name on it. So I want it to be well-received, you know? Also, I want it to be sure. good because 10 years from now, if I'm writing my fourth book, I want to come back to this and look at it and say, shit, I did a great job as the first book, you know? Yeah, that's definitely yeah. what you strive for. Yeah. But even if you thought in 10 years it was shit, it still will make who you are that day. Yeah. yeah. Really, it's the beauty of things. I, know. I, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank you so much. It's kind of hard to find people that you can be fully yourself and just truly laugh. If you ask me what, how would I would value all the things about comes with knowing you, I would say the number one thing is the ability to, to laugh with you, man. We, <laughs> yeah. I mean, before the show, after the show, <laughs> we During just laugh. The show it's, 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 <laughs> that, <laughs> and that's what makes, makes life beautiful really because it's it's complicated and messy and we don't know shit you know i used to pretend not pretend i used to think that i know uh-huh. and then i figured that i don't know but i still pretended that i did right now i don't give a fuck so this morning 
I'm sorry, I cut you off, but let me say this. No, please. This morning, we're, I was talking to my wife, and I said, you know, I don't like the way I'm existing in the music industry anymore because it's too tense. It's like I'm trying to make everything right on stage. The music needs to sound right. I just want to have fun. And I just want to play any song that I want to play. It could be a blues song. It could be a rock or metal song and all that. And just go out there and do the thing. Just have fun with it. Because I, see, I've been doing this since I was 18 or 17 or something professionally. You know, the first Pentagram album that I made was, I think I was 18 or something, 17 or 18. So it's been a while. I'm 51 and I'm tired of career. I've done so many things. I've been on four edges of the same table. I've been a record label. I've been a producer. I've been the artist. I've been the composer. Oh my God, you know, and then what are we going to do with the financial stuff? Then I started learning investment and I am seriously done with the career thing. I don't want to go on with the career anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think the world is going to that direction too. I think the career idealism is gone. People want to be entrepreneurs and they want to be free. And when they're tired of their work, they sell it and go to the next thing. You know what I mean? It's just a different mentality now. It used to be different when we were growing up. You know, the Generation X thing, the success-driven, climb the ladders of the corporate world or whatever, you know, those movies and all that, you know, Rain Man, you know, the guys, you know, selling cars and all that. Uh-huh. So the, the, that whole idea, it switched into riding scooters on the streets with headphones on your head, going to a coffee shop, opening your laptop and selling shit on the internet. And if you don't like it, go do something else or get onto a work as a temp and get a job as a temp and no commitment. I can take off anytime and you do and go to the next thing. I mean, didn't we see all those um, notes at the entrances of businesses saying that they will pay you $1,000 if you just apply and stay on the job for a month. Just do that. The amount changes from hundreds of thousands. So you know what that means? That means people don't give a shit about other people's businesses anymore. You know, So it's not a career thing. If you're applying for a job and working your ass off and getting paid a salary, which is being taxed, and it's a write-off for the company, obviously that company is making the money and they call what you do a job, which is which can turn into a career so that you can go up and become a manager. And then this, and then that. It's just the climbing up that the ladder. I don't think people are buying that anymore. They all want to be business owners, you know? Mm-hmm. And business is so easy now because of the internet and online sales and what have you. So a lot of people are doing stuff that we would think impossible, you know, when we were growing up. 24-year-olds are producing stuff in Middle East and selling them in the United States and making hundreds of thousands of dollars in a month. This is like new world. So career. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to go on tour and play at like stinky bars and everything and be away from my family and put $1,000 hopefully um, that night before I get into the van and go to my shitty hotel room and, you know, get my ass kicked the next day on the road in the van and play another show and fuck that. Yeah. It's not going to happen, dude. So at this point, you're more focused on the underlying feeling that moment, whatever makes you the happiest. Yeah. I mean, clearly you're still playing. We are playing. Yeah. We have shows yeah. lined up in, in February. But the, the approach is 
and as it should be in, in someone in in your caliber after all these years you're not after for impressing anyone not at all you're there to have a good time yeah, i don't think i was ever ever that way just just i just wanted to do that you know i like the sound of uh-huh. that music and i wanted to be making that sound you know it's just that don't get me wrong what i'm trying to say it's not wrong to play every night in small clubs or you know try to build it uh, build your band up or you know your your name up and all that there's nothing wrong with that it's just that the it's not there's no if if we're rabbits racing there's no carrot in front of us anymore that's what i'm trying to say uh-huh. we figured out that the carrot is fucking plastic uh-huh. okay th- i mean i think this is the best analogy that i can give you to explain what i'm trying to say yeah i mean there's still the millions and millions of people fill those subways daily for for the workforce that are f- chasing that rabbit in in the world things didn't change that drastically yet but A no. lot more people are becoming their own bosses now yeah, versus and before. No, all those people are aware of what's going on because they they started resenting the idea because before they were going there to fight and, you know, to get that bread and, you know, and go up in that ladder. I'm sure there are a lot of people doing the same thing still, but the young generation really is not buying that idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a whole different world. I don't know if it's going to be good or bad. But it's going to be a whole different world 50 years from now. Maybe maybe earlier, maybe 25 years from now. For sure. I, even even in less time from ch- entrance of ChatGPT last year to today's is when you look yeah. at it, it's it's incredible. And and with that rate of speed in, in like two, three oh years, God, I, yeah, I, yeah. I'm having a hard time yeah. even imagining how, how things are going to play out. But one thing you said, regardless of the evolving technologies, one's ability to reinvent themselves and and not to stick to one dogma of i am this i'm yep. that i am this today and i can be that tomorrow yeah. demir we can go till, till yeah, morning I, <laughs> i mean i will never run out of things to talk to you which is i'm i feel so grateful for thank that. you thank you for making the time being of here course. i believe many of these things we spoke about are are good I personally enjoy speaking about hopefully hopefully your listeners are going to like them too because I mean we've talked about some personal stuff and people who don't know me obviously won't care about it but it's just that I was trying to give ideas about how those experiences affected me as a as a human being as a person I mean, obviously wanted to give the human experience side of things so that people who don't know me would listen and maybe take some ideas for themselves I appreciate that because that's the whole idea yep. Of this podcast. Right. Thanks a lot, Mia. Thanks for having me. And one last question: the humor part. Is there humor in the book? Like, do you, when you're writing this imaginary story, do you laugh on your own? Yes, because I, I am a guy who is very humorous in the most serious situation. Uh-huh. You know, it's just come on, man. It can't. And nothing can be that serious. So you know what I mean. I mean, yes, uh, there, there's death and all that kind of stuff. But if you lose that, might as well not live. Because this doesn't make sense, man. One more thing. Okay. I was watching this. I was in Turkey. I was, uh, I missed home a lot at that time. And I was missing my family in the States. And I started watching this documentary about eternity, like endlessness or something, limitlessness or something like that. Man, the first 10 minutes of it, I was having a panic attack. Because if you think about what's going to happen to the world or to the earth, Like if you expand your vision, like thousands of years, hundred thousands of years, we're like nothing. 
So realizing that, you know, this whole thing is so insignificant, Mm -hmm. but it's very, very important because this is it. This is what we got. There's nothing else. Mm -hmm. Once we're gone, we're gone. That's it. No more Demir, no more Emre. Our sons, our daughters, our, their, their, all that stuff is going to be gone. Mm -hmm. And your cars, your house, your whatever, you know, all this technology that you had, your songs will be forgotten. Your voice will be forgotten. I can't remember my father's voice. This is the saddest thing, uh, thing in my life. You know, he died in 2019. I kept his voice in my mind for so long, but I can't remember it anymore, the tone of his voice. I remember his facial gestures and all that. So in time, we'll all be forgotten. That stuff that we took so seriously will be like nothing. Seriously, like think about nothing. It's probably that, basically. <laughs> so... How can you not have humor? I mean, this is a joke itself. So you better laugh. You better fucking laugh. (laughs) And die with a smile on your face. Floating on a piece of rock that's just going around with a really thin layer of atmosphere protecting (laughs) you from the vacuum of space. And yeah. 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 (laughs) Once you start thinking about these things, just like how you're laughing now, that's a true, genuine laugh. We're laughing at ourselves right now, so it's beautiful. Well, thank you for helping me do that. Every time we hang out, every time we play, this happens. So thank you for everything. Of course, Bill. See you soon. We'll do this again. We'll do round two. All right. Yeah. All right. This was fun. Thank you so much. <laughs>